Dad. Gets him every time. How'd you get that cucumber in here? <laughs> They're not even in season. <laughs> Welcome to Hello PhD, a podcast for scientists and the people who love them. Today on the show, we talk with a graduate student who traveled halfway around the globe to pursue a PhD and find out the best and worst parts of graduate training for international students. Stay with us. And we're back. This is Hello PhD, episode 22. I'm Joshua Hall. And I'm Daniel Arneman. And we'll discuss the human side of science and life in the lab. How's it going, Dan? It's going great, Josh. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How was your Thanksgiving? Awesome. Did you get out for Black Friday? Uh, I've got out of bed eventually on Black Friday. That's the way to do it. It's better to avoid the entire mess. Absolutely. Dan, we got some, uh, got some more Kansas beer today. Oh, excellent. I love Kansas beer. Yeah, I mentioned a few episodes ago, we had a listener from the University of Kansas in Lawrence who sent us some beer from Free State Brewing, and actually, they were kind enough to send us two different kinds of beer, so we have a different one today. This is the Copperhead Pale Ale from Free State Brewing. Delicious. We love a pale ale. Always love a pale ale. This is a solid one. Um can't go wrong with a pale L. And actually, Dan, it was intentional. Um, I was saving this one because today we're actually going to speak to a graduate student at the University of Kansas. Ooh, tie-in feature. Exactly. So, Excellent. Uh, but before we get into that, Dan, now that Thanksgiving is behind us, you know what that means. What does that mean? That means it's time to start thinking about your Christmas lists. Oh, I've already got it. I already got it written up. Yeah? You got your Christmas shopping started? Yeah, I want pruners pruners do you have some hedges that need tending or well, yeah i think so <laughs> i just moved and there are all these things i want to prune oh yeah i love trimming hedges <laughs> i do Great. it's like cutting hair but yeah it is on plants you shape it it looks good <laughs> um, um dan so i thought we could uh, maybe help our listeners out with their shopping uh do you have any stocking stuffer ideas for for the upcoming holiday season well i did recently see a list of toys that you should not buy and included in this list was something that that i was incredulous that this exists but uh the time has come this is called pudo and pudo pudo yes explain uh it is spelled p-o-o dash do it is play-doh that is brown colored that comes with a special poo shaped mold so you can shape it uh and then leave it around the house it says place pudo around the house to prank family and guests sit back and enjoy the laughs so when you say poo, you mean you mean fecal matter. That is Dough. the joke. Yeah, this is a real thing. I, it is absolutely a real thing. I think anybody who is studying the gut microbiome needs to get some of this. Oh yeah, every microbiome lab needs to have their own poo People will crack up. We'll put a link to it on the website. Where, um, where can you get poo On Amazon.com. Although no. I have to tell you, the reason that they said it was not safe for children is because it contains wheat, and so if you are allergic to wheat, do not buy poo Also. If you have any <laughs> sense or you're an adult or... Because, because containing wheat is the biggest problem with Pudo. Yeah. Well, yes, fair enough. You know, it also contains wheat. The actual poo of people who eat wheat. That's true. <laughs> so keep that away from children. 
<laughs> we will not be airing any of this. Don't worry. So, so Dan, we're going to put a link to this on the show notes. If you want to buy your own Pudo, get your Christmas shopping started early. No, I, I'll, I'll send it as the etymology puzzle gift. That'd be... <laughs> That's right. So either answer the puzzle or buy some Pudo. Pudo coming your way. Hey, something else came across my radar that was pretty cool this week. Um, the hottest internet sensation right now is cats versus cucumbers. Have you seen this, Dan? Yeah, I saw that you tweeted it out, and, and I watched some of the cat videos, and they're hilarious, but I have no idea why cats are afraid of cucumbers. Yeah, so it, for those of you who haven't seen this yet, um, apparently, not apparently, because there are plenty of people who have documented this on YouTube. Science. Plenty of people equals science. <laughs> That's right. Um, so if you sneak up behind your cat and place a cucumber on the floor next to them, your cat will freak out. Yeah, they they see it, and I guess it's just disconcerting that this thing has snuck up on them. I don't understand. Oh, I have so many questions, Dan. So many follow-up experiments. Like, does it have to be a cucumber? What about a zucchini? You do own a cat. You could do this. We talked about, you know, citizen science a couple of weeks ago <laughs> with, the, with the beekeeping episode. W- let's do it. That's true. Hello, PhD listeners. If you have any follow-up studies on the cats versus cucumbers, we need to know. Uh, I did see one of the video clips. There was a cucumber and two bell peppers, and the cat seemed to selectively attack the cucumber. So uh, so weird. So this is what you have to do. You have to do the cucumber. But I wonder if the cat can be desensitized. If you do it, if you do too many trials, the cat's like, oh, that cucumber is just following be. me everywhere. It could be. But, you know, the reason I'm actually talking about this here, Dan, is something cool happened this week. Some very enterprising graduate students at Cornell University created their own video called Scientists versus Cucumbers. Similar results for the scientists frightened? Turns out scientists and cats have the exact same reaction to cucumbers placed surreptitiously in the lab. I don't want to alarm you, but do not turn around. There may be a cucumber right behind you. Son of a... Dad. <laughs> Gets him every time. How'd you get that cucumber in here? <laughs> <laughs> They're not even in season. <laughs> it better be organic. <laughs> so yeah, definitely check out. We will also link the scientists versus cucumbers link. I think I tweeted it out a couple days ago. But be sure to watch until the final scene. It is pretty hilarious. Awesome. Now, in more serious news, uh, you actually were able to talk to a graduate student who it sounds like has come a very very long way to study in the United States. You mentioned that she is. Uh, at University of Kansas right now? Yeah, so I had a chance to speak with Haifa, and she is a graduate student at Kansas, like you said, originally from Saudi Arabia. And so one of the things that we thought would be interesting is to get her perspective on some of the unique challenges that international students face uh, coming to graduate school here in the United States, as if grad school is not hard enough. Yeah, it is definitely hard enough. Um, So let's hear what she had to say. All right. So hello, everyone. My name is Haifa Al-Hadiyan, and I'm a sec- I am a second-year graduate student in uh, Molecular Biosciences Department at the University of Kansas. So I guess the first question would be, um, what made you decide to pursue a career in science, and, and what made you decide you wanted to go to graduate school? Okay, so um, I have been passionate about science since I was a little. Uh, I love explore and question everything, and I... To be honest, I can't imagine myself doing anything other than science. Um, so when I graduated from my um, when I graduated from my bachelor like program, uh, you, fa- you basically apply for an English center, and then the, after they accepted you, you go 
um, to uh, United States, travel there, and you basically study for a whole year. And then after you completed all the courses, uh, then you apply for the University of Kansas or for any university that you really want. So what made you decide to choose Kansas? So this is the funny thing. The city that I really wanted to be in is... Um, like small city and like quiet and it's perfect for students to maybe like do fun thing but at the same time focus on their work. I chose uh, University of Kansas because they have uh, an English center, it's called Applied English Center and they basically prepare you for not only to be um, to speak English but also uh, to be um, to meet the qualifications that other um, native speakers or have either like a bachelor degree or a master or a PhD. So one question I have is, was it challenging to decide to leave, leave your home and come to the United States to study? Actually, yeah, kind of, because it was my first time like being away from home um, or I mean travel outside Saudi Arabia. So it was really challenging to be exposed to different culture, to different um, like um, language, um, having no experience in um, science before. I mean, I, I know, like, I graduated from zoology, but uh, I was um, sure that it will be totally different from um, the science here. So maybe, yeah, it was really challenging, especially, like, my mom. She didn't realize that I'm going to leave until the day that I, I, yeah, I traveled. Yeah, it was a really difficult day that day. My next question is, what are some of the biggest challenges that you have faced since you came to the United States and started graduate school that are specific to being an international student? Yeah, so the first thing is the language. I know maybe some international students, they don't face the same problem, but for me, it was really difficult because I had to master the language in one year and join the grad school right away. And also, I mean, the, my uh, field of study, which is uh, developmental biology uh, com combined with genetics, you have to know how to explain the phenotype. And this is my weaknesses. And I'm going to like, one of my weaknesses, and I'm going to just like admit that. Because you, you need to have a lot of vocabulary that's uh, not like specific, like not formal kind of language, like English language, and to make it more simpler for uh, like for the listeners to understand the phenotype. So maybe this is a really challenge. Sometimes I would just like grab a paper and then draw, draw it instead of just saying it. Maybe the, communica the scientific communication, maybe it's difficult for us as an international student um, who, doesn't have, who don't have uh, a really strong English background. Let's pause here a second, Josh. This is something that I hadn't really considered when thinking about traveling as an international student. She's doing this work on fruit flies, and a lot of that work is about describing these new phenotypes that they're generating. Um, that would be really, really difficult if you didn't know the words for curly-winged and the legs are jointed this way or the body shape is is this shape. If you only know that in your own language, how do you describe that to somebody else? Yeah, you know, it's it's funny to tie this into the main topic of our show last week, which was non-technical writing and the importance of all the communication, which is most of the communication we actually do on a day-to-day -day basis in the lab that is a lot more informal and how critical it is to be able to do that effectively, that informal communication and how hard that would be. Because Dan, have you ever learned a second language? Or? I, I took French in high school. And and so I could say something is is pretty 
or I could say it's fat, or I could, but that's about it. Or red, I could say red. Yeah, that's my Spanish knowledge. I would be, yeah. hopefully, my fruit fly phenotype would be, es muy gordo. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You'd have to limit your research to things that you can say in in the language that you're learning. And the one fruit fly phenotype I know is the cheap date one, where it gets drunk too fast. You oh know yeah, what I'm about? yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. There's the happy hour one too. What I does think that do? That maybe it gets drunk less fast. I don't okay. Know. We need to lo- we need to learn more Drosophila <laughs> genetics, but but the barrier is real, and it's not something that they're going to teach you in a class. I don't know how how you go about acquiring this type of nuanced language. Yeah, I think it it's just a time and experience thing. I was in graduate school with a student from Guatemala, and he was saying when he actually came to the United States to to do his his work. He was very careful not to live with other Spanish-speaking students because I think, you know, sometimes what you can do, understandably, is probably what I would do, is you seek out maybe other international students or other students who speak the same language as you. So at least when you go home, you you can speak in your native tongue. But he always told me about how he did the opposite because he thought it would help him more quickly come up to speed and get comfortable with conversational English, which is very different than just the formal English you would learn in class. He's probably right, but it'd be exhausting. You'd want that kind of low energy state to be able to just relax and think in your own language and talk in your own language. But, um, you know, she admits this is, this is a challenge for her and it's something that she's going to work on. It's better than pretending like it's not hard and pretending like it's not something that she's going to need help with. I think the people in the lab are more likely to support her, uh, because she's able to say, look, I know what this looks like, but I don't know the words for it. And then she can get them to teach her those words in English, um, and use them in the papers or whatever she needs to write. Yeah. And I think if there's a lesson here, you know, Dan, I've worked with a number of English second language students. And I think sometimes there's a hesitancy among students to advocate for themselves um, or admit that they're having trouble understanding if English is not their, their first language. And, you know, oftentimes I think this is an issue with, with us who are native English speakers who have the privilege of actually doing science in our native tongue. Um, but we're not necessarily going to think about it. We're not necessarily, and PIs, I imagine, are not necessarily going to take that into consideration. So, you know, really advice would be, I think, for international students would be, if English is not in your comfort zone, to really be upfront about, hey, you know what, I didn't get that, or, you know, could you say that again, or could you help me come up with the words for this? That's great. Well, let's get back to the interview. Okay. So I assume you probably have other friends or colleagues who are also international students. And so what are some other challenges that you've observed that international graduate students in particular face during their training? I think the the environment of the lab, because, you know, like different culture have different way of um, uh, like, I mean, the relationship between the students and the relationship between you and your mentor, it's different here than, um, like, in other international um, labs. Um, I think it's different also um, from our country, basically. Because, I mean, so the way that in our country works, that there's barriers between you as a student and your mentor or your professor. There is not, not a lot of freedom that you can explain or question anything. Um, sometimes, if you, qu- I mean, I get the, the same problem when I ask ask a question and they said you better like go and read about it because it's not that important. Uh, but here, it's um, you give they give you the 
actual like opportunity to question everything to um, even if the, even if your question isn't that important uh, they really appreciate the fact that you're thinking and you're observing the differences um, in your work mm-hmm. no that makes sense so then how so then I guess how would you describe that as being a challenge for an international student like understanding the difference in that culture is there an adjustment period I think it's adjustment, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember like my first month in grad school, I was really isolated because I had a problem. How, to, how can I deal with this situation? Um, because you've been, like, in the, you've been raised in an environment that there's barriers be- between you and uh, like your college, co- I mean your friends and your mentor, and then you shifted to the environment that um, encouraged you to, um, to be exposed more. Uh, as a scientist, um, and you expose your thinking, your thinking process. Um, yeah, so I think the shifting thing is really, really like kind of tricky sometimes. Yeah. Okay, let's pause here again. That is something I hadn't really thought about in terms of the the cultural differences of the lab. Um, this difference between how you treat the hierarchy and the authority um, in different countries and different cultures. Yeah, that's really interesting because, you know, Dan, I think we we both know, having been through the system, that one of the ways that PIs often will assess their graduate students is, um, I guess, the level of initiative the student takes to question things and maybe to not necessarily argue, but to challenge ideas and to, to speak up, and whether it's in lab meeting or in a, a seminar or even in a one-on-one one meeting with the PI to, to actually challenge ideas. Yeah, That's seen as a good thing. You're expected to think critically. And and my relationships with PIs have always been very conversational, um, not exactly peer-based. You know, we're not exactly on the same level. You treat them like, uh, um, I guess you, you treat them as if they are your boss, but you you don't treat them as if they're this, you know, the high up person that you can never, you know, you kowtow to and you cower when they're in the room. Yeah, and I don't know if you had the same experience as I did, Dan, but, you know, being an undergraduate um, in the United States, the first time I got involved in the research lab was the first time I'd really interacted with a professor uh, in that way. And so even the, the very active, you know, my mentor as in my undergrad lab wanting me to call him by his first name, right? That was a really big deal, kind of a unique thing. So then by the time I got to graduate school, though, I was very used to that part of the culture that, oh, yeah, you're on a first-name basis with your PI. Yeah, but not in every culture. In some cultures, it's doctor this or, yeah. Yeah, and that would definitely be a cultural um, barrier you'd have to adjust to um, that maybe domestic students don't have to. This reminds me a lot. I don't know if if you've seen Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers. I'm I'm not in love with Malcolm Gladwell's books, but I do think he uses some language that describes this dynamic. Um, He tells a story about... um, airline crashes, particularly the Korean airline. And he talks about how in the United States, uh, there's a a different cultural dynamic in the cockpit. So the co-pilot, if he sees a problem, he will bring it up and and tell the pilot there's the problem. Um, But in the book, he describes several airline crashes where the pilot is seen as the authority. The co-pilot sees a problem, but doesn't feel comfortable talking about it or calling it out. He suggests it very mildly. The pilot contradicts him. He suggests it mildly again. The pilot contradicts him and he doesn't say anything. And then, you know, 
he looks at the rates of plane crashes in these different um, cultures, but he calls them um, low power distance and high power distance. And I think that really describes what she's talking about here. Um, where she comes, you know, where she grew up is is a more high power distant culture in the lab um, in the United States. It's lower power distance, and that allows her to speak up. I wonder if that has an effect on the quality of the science and the quality of the training. Yeah, I think it, it very much could because, again, you know, I think it's one of those unspoken rules that if you already have been in that culture of doing research um, here in the States, um, you're aware coming into graduate school, like we were just talking about, that that's the expectation, that that's a good thing, that's how you get noticed, how you get ahead. And so if you're not already there, you could easily, maybe you don't get in the best lab or you don't get on, get in on the project that has the, the most payoff because you didn't know you were supposed to you know, speak up that way. Yeah, or you could be, you could be left way. out of the conversation because you assume that you shouldn't bring up these questions. It's really interesting. I, I would also like to hear from any listeners who have had experiences in labs. Um, you know, I'll use that language, low power distance and high power distance. Have you been in both types? And does one lead to better conversations, better inquiry, better science than the other? Or do you just get different types of research? Or um, really, how does it affect the culture of the lab? I'd be really interested to hear from people who have, have experienced that. Yeah, and I think, you know, like we just said, maybe something that we don't often think about, but for students, whether actually whether they're domestic students or international students, but students come who come from different cultures than is the norm within the academic setting of a big research institution really have an extra steep hill hill to climb because they're not just the normal challenges of graduate school, but this extra cultural um, evolution they have to go through to uh to overcome to be successful yeah it is more difficult for sure well let's go back to your interview and and hear some more so i guess along those lines if there was one thing you could change about graduate school that would make it better for international students what would that be um if we make the science has like more global language um basically um teach undergrad back home in English other than in, uh, in, I mean, in Arabic. I know a lot of people say, this is your like mother language and you have to be grateful for, and I'm really grateful, but now Engl- the, uh, English language now is more global uh, or like the, the most international language that all the people speak. So if like convert all the courses from being uh, studied in, in Arabic to English, maybe this is will help a, a lot of international students um, from uh, yeah from Arabic or from other uh, language to English. Maybe this is will help a lot of international students. Maybe they will do better. The transition will be easier. Yeah, I think the transition will be easier. So I have not been to Saudi Arabia yet, but I have been to Kansas, and so I would imagine culturally those are two very different places. So. What has it been like being a native of Saudi Arabia, living in the Midwestern United States? Culturally, what has that change been like? Honestly, I didn't like experience any major differences, maybe because the, the city that I lived in, Lawrence, is small. And there is a lot of uh, international students, basically, because it's um, a student city. Um, so there is a lot of international students. You can see the different um, 
there is a lot of Saudi students as well. So I don't think there is any major um, differences between between the two uh, like universities. So have you decided on a career path? What do you want to do after graduate school? I actually like uh, doing outreach and um, doing research at the same time. I mean, I wish I can get my own lab maybe sometime in the future and be uh, in academia other than uh, maybe industry. I will use my knowledge um, that I gain in the United States to introduce uh, modern organisms and basic research um, to Saudi Arabia universities um, because there is a lot of, uh, I, I believe that there's a lot of smart people who can contribute to the scientific community uh, back home, but uh, the gap is still, still needs to be filled. So I hope I'm going to be the one who take care of this. Um, I want to thank you, Josh, for uh, inviting me to, to be interviewed in your podcast. I'm a really big fan, and I listen to it each Monday. I really enjoyed it. Um, the only thing that I really want to say is that um, grad school is really hard. Um, I really want to encourage all the students, not all the international students, but also um, like all the graduate students to keep the hard work and to enjoy what they're doing. All right, Dan, so that was my interview with Haifa. That was great. It was really fascinating to hear such a different perspective. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I realized, Dan, you know, from my privileged point of view of going through graduate school, um, you know, as an American English speaking citizen, um, you know, I guess I wondered, you know, how could we, you know, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is making the science training environment better for everybody. Yeah. So what are the take homes? What can we do about helping Haifa and people like her. Yeah, and you know, Dan, I think one of the things, or actually, as she was talking about, two of those big challenges that we highlighted, that, and those were um, the language barriers, right, as you get accustomed to doing science in English, but also some of these cultural differences about how you interact with your mentor and maybe even how you interact with your colleagues. I think there could be a lot of utility in having some sort of, of, cultural training for faculty mentors who are going to take on graduate students or even postdocs, um, you know, to understand or at least to bring to the forefront of their mind some of these very real challenges that their trainees might be um, going through that perhaps they're not aware of. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I have to say here, you know, how exciting it is that the smartest, most passionate, most talented people in the world want to come here to study. And that is such uh, such an amazing, important thing. Anything we can do to make that easier and better is is great. It's good for all of us. Yeah, and there's actually research out there, Dan, that shows that a true diversity in backgrounds and ways of thinking about problems leads to better outcomes, better results, and better discovery. Excellent. Well, can we move on to the etymology puzzle? I'm excited about this one, Dan. You really stumped me this week. I... Tried to obfuscate it as much as possible. The clue last week was, before there was a turducken, Carl Linnaeus named this special bird a guinea fowl chicken peacock. I'm looking for the genus and the species. And since you do not know the answer, I will tell you the answer. Now, Dan, is this where we get the beer can guinea fowl chicken peacock? Oh, interesting. <laughs> yes. No, that, that would just be the beer can chicken, right? Because this, this animal <laughs> encompasses chicken with some other things. What is it, Dan? Uh, it is the name for the wild turkey, 
and it is Meliagris gallopavo. And Meliagris refers to a guinea fowl, and I think it refers to the spots. There are actually a lot of different species that have that name. Um, there are flowers, and there are lizards, and different things. Is that like melanin? Um, that I don't know. I couldn't find the actual origin of that word. I couldn't find like the deeper root. Etymology is is like an onion, right? You can go layer by layer by layer. Many layers. But the second part, the the species name, Gallo, Gallus Gallus, and Pavo refers to a peacock. And I, I'm assuming, you know, Carl Linnaeus, he invented binomial nomenclature. I'm assuming he looked at the the way the turkey spreads its tail. I don't know if you've seen it. Yeah, male absolutely, turkey, absolutely. A tom turkey. Uh, but it spreads its tail. So I'm, I'm thinking he, he looks at this and he's like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, that's like a chicken peacock. Not quite as pretty as a peacock. Much bigger than a chicken. That's one of them guinea chicken turkeys. I think that's. I think he probably said those same words in that exact same accent. <laughs> guinea chicken peacocks. Un- undoubtedly. All right. Well, hopefully you got to enjoy lots of Meliagris Galapavo at your Thanksgiving dinner. Um, and I have another sort of holiday-themed clue for this week, if you're ready. I am so ready. Lay it oh, on me. Okay. The clue this week is... A happy family may eat at the same table, but this group of bacteria also shares the meal. I'll read it again. A happy family may eat at the same table, but this group of bacteria also shares the meal. Remember, I'm looking for a scientific word described by the clue, and once you get it, you'll find the literal meaning of that science word as a phrase in the clue itself. If you think you know the answer, email it to puzzle at hellophd.com, and I'll randomly select a winner from the correct responses and send the lucky puzzler an Amazon gift card. I love a microbiology puzzle. It's it's a good one. I really I really enjoyed writing this one. Dan, this was a great show. Thanks again, as always. Thank you, sir. How do they get in touch with us if they want to? So if you have a question that you would like answered on the show, you can email us, podcast at hellophd.com, or reach out to us on the Twitter at hellophd, or we have a Facebook page. You can get in touch with us that way. On the Facebooks. Um, and thank you to our friends in Kansas. We are still enjoying our Copperhead Pale Ale. Um, the, the picture on the front is a hawk of some sort. I believe that's a hawk. But isn't a Copperhead a snake? I think it is. That's a good point, Dan. I'm going to need to call somebody. <laughs> um, go out there, get your Christmas shopping done, get your uh, Pudo, and let us know your reaction. <laughs> Send us pictures? No. We will, no. Thank you. We will create the newest internet sensation, Cats versus Pudo. Do not send us pictures. And if you are allergic to wheat or know someone who is, please do not purchase that toy. We did not recommend it. Pudo is right out. Do not buy it. We will see you next week. See you next week.